Chapter Eleven, Part Two, of Mister Waddington of Wick by May Sinclair. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Chapter Eleven, Part Two. Elise would be taken into the drawing room. He went to wait for her there and as he walked up and down restless listening for the sound of her feet on the gravel drive and the ringing of the bell at each turn of his steps he was arrested by his own portrait it stared at him from its place above fanny's writing-table handsome with its brilliant black and carmine it gave him an uneasy sense of rivalry as if he felt the disagreeable presence of a younger man in the room he stared back at it he stared at himself in the great looking-glass over the chimney-piece beside it he remembered fanny saying that she liked the iron grey of his moustache and hair it was more becoming than all that hard shiny black fanny was right it was more becoming and his skin the worn bloom of it like a delicate sprinkling of powder better more refined than that rich high red of the younger man in the gilt frame to be sure his eyes blurred onyx bulged out of creased pouches but his nose the postlethwaite nose a very handsome feature lifted itself firmly above the fleshy sagging of the face his lips pouted in pride he could still console himself with the thought that mirrors were unfaithful elise would see him as he really was not that discoloured and distorted image he pushed out his great chest and drew a deep robust breath at the thought of elise the pride the rich voluptuous youthful pride of life mounted and as he turned again he saw fanny looking at him the twenty-year-old fanny in her girl's white frock and blue sash her tilted gainsborough face mischievous and mocking smiled as if she were making fun of him his breath caught in his chest fanny fanny his wife why hadn't his wife the loyalty and intelligence of barbara the enthusiasm the seriousness of elise he needn't have any conscientious scruples on fanny's account she had driven him to elise with her frivolity her eternal smiling of course he knew that she cared for him that he had power over her that there had never been and never would be any other man for fanny but he couldn't go on with fanny's levity for ever he wanted something more something sound and solid something that elise gave him and no other woman any man would want it and yet fanny's image made him uneasy watching him there smiling as if she knew all about elise and smiled pretending not to care he didn't want fanny to watch him with elise he didn't want elise to see fanny when he looked at fanny's portrait he felt again his old repugnance to their meeting he didn't want elise to sit in the same room with fanny to sit in fanny's chair the drawing-room was fanny's room the red dahlia and powder blue parrot chintz was fanny's choice every table cabinet and chair was in the place that fanny had chosen for it the book the frivolous book she had been reading before she went away lay on her little table fanny was fanny and elise was elise he rang the bell and told partridge to show mrs levitt into the library and to bring tea there the library was his room he could do what he liked in it the girl fanny laughed at him out of the corners of her eyes as he went suddenly he felt tender and gentle to her because of elise when elise came she found him seated in his armchair absorbed in a book he rose in a dreamy attitude as if he were still dazed and abstracted with his reading 
thus at the very start he gave himself the advantage he showed himself superior to elise intellectually and morally superior you're deep in it i'm interrupting she said he came down from his height instantly he was all hers no i was only trying to pass the time till you came i'm late then ten minutes he smiled indulgent elise was looking handsomer than ever the light november chill had whipped a thin flush into her face he watched her as she took off her dark skunk furs and her coat how delightful to watch a woman taking off her things the pretty gestures of abandonment the form emerging slimmer that was one of the things you thought and couldn't say supposing he had said it to elise would she have minded what are you thinking of she said how did you know i was thinking of anything your face it tells tales only nice ones to you my dear lady ah but you didn't tell would you like me to not if it's naughty your face looks naughty he wheeled delighted now how does my face look when it's naughty oh that would be telling it's just as well you shouldn't know was it as naughty as all that then yes or as nice they kept it up lightly till partridge and annie trinder came tinkling and rattling with the tea-things outside the door as if mr waddington thought they meant to warn them partridge he called as the butler was going partridge if sir john corbett calls you can show him in here but i'm not at home to anybody else clever idea that he isn't coming is he the tiresome old thing no he isn't if i thought he was for one minute i wouldn't be at home then why why did i say i would be because i wanted to make it safe for you elise thus tactfully he let it dawn on her that he might be dangerous we don't want to be interrupted do we he said not by sir john corbett he drew up the big padded sofa square before the fire for elise all his movements were unconscious innocent of deliberation and design he seated himself top heavily behind the diminutive gate-legged tea-table the teapot and cups were like dolls things in his great hands she looked at him at his slow fingers fumbling with the sugar-tongs would you like me to pour out tea for you she said he started visibly he wouldn't like it at all he wasn't going to allow elise to put herself into fanny's place pouring out tea for him as if she was his wife she wouldn't have suggested it if she had had any tact or any delicacy no he said the no sounded hard and ungracious you must really let me have the pleasure of waiting on you the sugar dropped from the tongs he fumbled again madly and elise smiled damn the tongs he thought damn the sugar take it in your fingers goose she said goose an endearment a caress it softened him his tenderness for elise came back my fingers are all thumbs he said your thumbs then you don't suppose i mind there was meaning in her voice and mr waddington conceived himself to be on the verge of the first exquisite intimacies of love he left off thinking about fanny he poured out tea and handed bread and butter in a happy dream he ate and drank without knowing what he ate and drank his whole consciousness was one muzzy heavy sense of the fullness and nearness of elise he could feel his ears go vroom vroom and his voice thicken as if he were slightly very slightly drunk he wondered how elise could go on eating bread and butter he heard himself sigh when at last he put her cup down he considered the position of the tea-table in relation to the sofa 
it hemmed in that part of it where he was going to sit very cramping he moved it well back and considered it again it now stood in his direct line of retreat from the sofa to the armchair an obstruction if anybody were to come in he moved it to one side that's better he said now we can get a clear view of the fire it isn't too much for you elise he had persuaded himself that he had really moved the tea-table because of the fire as yet he had no purpose and no plan he didn't know what on earth he was going to say to elise he sat down beside her and there was a sudden hushed pause elise had turned round in her seat and was looking at him her eyes were steady behind the light tremor of their lashes brilliant and profound he reflected that her one weak point the shortness of her legs was not noticeable when she was sitting down he also wondered how he could ever have thought her mouth hard it moved with a little tender sensitive twitch like the flutter of her eyelids and he conceived that she was drawn to him and held trembling by his fascination she spoke first mr waddington i don't know how to thank you for your kindness about the rent but you know it's safe don't you of course i know it don't talk about rent don't think about it oh, i can't help it i can't think of anything else until it's paid i'd rather you never paid any rent at all than that you should worry about it like this i didn't ask you to come here to talk business elise i'm afraid i must talk about it just a little not now he said firmly i won't listen it sounded exactly as if he said he wouldn't listen to any more talk about rent but he thought i don't know what i shall do if she begins about that five hundred but she hardly can after that anyhow i shall decline to discuss it tell me what you've been doing with yourself oh you can't do much with yourself in wick i trot about my house my dear little house that you've made so nice for me i do my marketing and i go out to tea with the parson's wife or the doctor's wife or mrs bostock or mrs granger i didn't know you went to the grangers he thought that was not very loyal of elise you must go somewhere well and in the evenings we play bridge who plays bridge mr hawtrey or mr thurston or young hawtrey and toby and major markham and me always major markham well he comes a good deal he likes coming does he do you mind i should mind very much if i thought it would make any difference any difference she frowned and blinked as though she were trying hard to see what he meant what he possibly could mean by that difference she said to what to you and me well, of course it doesn't not a scrap how could it no how could it i don't really believe it could but why should it she persisted why indeed ours is a wonderful relation a unique relation and i think you want as much as i do to to keep it intact of course i want to keep it intact i wouldn't for worlds let anything come between us certainly not bridge she meditated i suppose i do play rather a lot there's nothing else to do you see and you get carried away i hope my dear you don't play for money oh well it isn't much fun for the others if we don't you don't play high i hope what do you call high well breaking into pound notes pound notes penny points well ten shillings is a very high stake when we're reckless and going it besides i always play against markham and hawtrey because i know they won't be hard on me if i lose now that's what i don't like i'd a thousand times rather pay your gambling debts than have you putting yourself under an obligation to those men he couldn't bear it he couldn't bear to think that elise could bear it you should have come to me he said 
I have come to you, haven't I? She thought of the five hundred pounds. He thought of them, too. Ah, that's different. Now, about these debts to Markham and Hawtrey, how much do they come to, about? Oh, a five-pound note would cover all of it, but I shall only be in debt to you. We'll say nothing about that. If I pay it, Elise, will you promise me you'll never play higher than penny points again? Oh, it's too angelic of you, really. He smiled. He liked paying her gambling debts. He liked the power it gave him over her. He liked to think that he could make her promise. He liked to be told he was angelic. It was all very cheap at five pounds, and it would enable him to refuse the five hundred with a better grace. Come, on your word of honour, only penny points. On my word of honour? But, oh, I don't think I can take it. She thought of the five hundred. When you wanted five hundred, it was pretty rotten to be put off with a fiver. If you can take it from Hawtrey and Markham, that's it. I can't take it from Markham. I haven't done that. I can't do it. Well, Hawtrey, then. Hawtrey's different. Why is he different? A faint suspicion relating to Markham troubled him, and not for the first time. Well, you see, he's a middle-aged married man. He might be my uncle. He thought, and Markham, he might be. But Elise was not in love with the fellow. No, no. He was sure of Elise. He knew the symptoms. You couldn't mistake them. But she might marry Markham all the same. Out of boredom, out of uncertainty, out of desperation. He was not going to let that happen. He would make it impossible. He would give Elise the certainty she wanted now. You said I was different. Playful reproach. But she would understand. So you are. You're a married man too, aren't you? I thought we'd agreed to forget it. Forget it? Forget Mrs. Waddington? Yes, forget her. You knew me long before you knew Fanny. What has she got to do with you and me? Just this, that she's the only woman in the county who'll know me. Because you're my friend, Elise. You needn't remind me. I'm not likely to forget that any good thing that's come to me here has come through you. I don't want anything but good to come to you through me. He leaned forward. You're not very happy in Wick, are you? Happy? Oh, yes. But it's not what you'd call wildly exciting, and Toby's worrying me. He says he can't stand it, and he wants to emigrate. Well, why not? Mr. Waddington's heart gave a great thump of hope. He saw it all clearly. Toby was the great obstruction. Elise might have held out forever as long as Toby lived with her, but if Toby went... She saw it, too. That was why she consented to his going. It isn't much of a job for him, Bostock's bank no she assented no i've told him he can go if he can get anything he played stroking the long tails of her fur it lay between them like a soft supine animal would you like to live in cheltenham elise cheltenham if i took a little house for you he had calculated that he might just as well lose his rent in cheltenham as in wick better besides he needn't lose it he could let the white house it would partly pay for cheltenham one of those little houses in montpelier place oh it's too sweet of you to think of it she began playing too stroking the fur animal their hands played together over the sleek softness consciously shyly without touching but why cheltenham cheltenham isn't wick no but it's just as dull and stuffy stuffier beautiful little town elise what's the good of that when it's crammed full of school children and school teachers and decayed army people and old maids i don't know anybody in cheltenham 
can't you see that that would be the advantage no i can't see it there's only one place i want to live in and that is london and i can't why not after all london was not such a bad idea he had thought of it before now himself well i don't know whether i told you that i'm not on very good terms with my husband's people they haven't been at all nice to me since poor frank's death oh poor elise they live in london and they want to keep me out of it my father-in-law gives me a small allowance on condition i don't live there they hate me she said smiling as much as all that is it a large allowance no it's a very small one but they know i can't get on without it you ought not to be dependent on such people perhaps in a flat or one of those little houses in st john's wood it would be too heavenly but what's the good of talking about it you must know what i want to do for you elise i want to make you happy to put you safe above all these wretched worries to take care of you dear you will let me won't you oh my dear mr waddington my dear friend the dark eyes brightened she saw a clear prospect of the five hundred compared with what old waddy was proposing such a sum and a mere loan too represented moderation the moment had come very happily for reopening this question i can't let you do anything so so extensive really and truly all i want is just a temporary loan if you really could lend me that five hundred you said i didn't say i would and i didn't say i wouldn't i said it would depend why no but you never said on what if the securities i offered you aren't good enough there's the legacy he was silent he knew now that his condition had had nothing to do with the securities he must know he would know where he stood my aunt said elise gently is very old i wouldn't dream of touching your poor little legacy he said it with passion won't you drop all this sordid talk about business and trust me i do trust you the little white hand left off stroking the dark fur and reached out to him he took it and held it tight it struggled to withdraw itself you aren't afraid of me he said no but i'm afraid of partridge coming in and seeing us he might think it rather odd he won't come in it doesn't matter what partridge thinks oh doesn't it he won't come in he drew a little closer to her he will he will he'll come and clear away the things i hear him coming he got up and went to the door of the smoke-room to the further door and looked out there's no one there he said they don't come till six and it isn't five yet elise abstract your mind one moment from partridge if i get that little house in london will you live in it i can't let you you make me ashamed after all you've done for me it's too much it isn't if i take it will you let me come and see you oh yes but she shrank so far as elise could be said to shrink a little further back into her corner it's rather far from wick he said still i could run up once in he became pensive in three weeks or so for the day i should be delighted no not for the day he was irritated with this artificial obtuseness for the weekend for the week sometimes when i can manage it i shall say it's business she drew back and back as if from his advance her head tilted her eyes glinting at him under lowered lids taking it all in yet pretending a paralysis of ignorance she wanted to see to see how far he would go before she she wanted him to think she didn't understand him even now 
it was this half-fascinated backward gesture that excited him he drew himself close close elise it's no use pretending you know what i mean you know i want you he stooped over her covering her with his great chest he put his arms round her in my arms you know you want me she felt his mouth pushed out to her mouth as it retreated trying to cover it to press down she gave a cry oh oh you and struggled beating him off with one hand while the other fumbled madly for a pocket-handkerchief his grip slackened he rose to his feet but he still stooped over her penning her in with his outstretched arms his weight propped by his hands laid on the back of the sofa you old imbecile she spurted she could afford it in one rapid flash of intelligence she had seen that whatever happened she could never get that five hundred pounds down and to surrender to old waddy without it to surrender to old waddy at all when she could marry freddy markham would be too preposterous even if there hadn't been any freddy markham it would have been preposterous at that moment as she said it while he still held her prisoned and they stared into each other's faces she spurting and he panting barbara came in he started jerked himself upright mrs levitt recovered herself you silly cuckoo she said you don't know how ridiculous you look she had found her pocket handkerchief and was dabbing her eyes and mouth with it rubbing off the uncleanness of his impact how ridiculous <laughs> she shook with laughter barbara pretended not to see them to have gone back at once closing the door on them would have been to admit that she had seen them instead she moved quickly yet abstractedly to the writing-table took up the photographs and went out again mr waddington had turned away and stood leaning against the chimney-piece hiding his head poor old ostrich in his hands his attitude expressed a dignified sorrow and a wronged integrity barbara stood for a collected instant at the door and spoke i'm sorry i forgot the photographs as if she said cheer up old thing i didn't really see you through the closed door she heard mrs levitt's laughter let loose malignant shrill hysterical a horrid sound i'm sorry elise but i thought you cared for me you'd no business to think and it wasn't likely i'd tell you oh, you didn't tell me my dear how could you but you made me believe you wanted me wanted do you suppose i wanted to be made ridiculous love isn't ridiculous said mr waddington it is it's the most ridiculous thing there is and when you're making it if you could have seen your face oh dear if you wouldn't laugh quite so loud the servants will hear you i mean them to hear me confound you elise that's right swear at me swear at me oh, i'm sorry i swore but hang it all it's every bit as bad for me as it is for you worse i fancy you needn't think miss madden didn't see you because she did it's a pity miss madden didn't come in a little sooner sooner i think she chose her moment very well if she had heard the whole of our conversation i think she'd have realized there was something to be said for me there isn't anything to be said for you and until you've apologized for insulting me you've heard me apologize as for insulting you no decent woman in the circumstance ever tells a man his love insults her even if she can't return it and even if he's another woman's husband even if he's another woman's husband if she's ever given him the right right do you think you bought the right to make love to me she rose confronting him no 
i thought you'd given it me i was mistaken he helped her to put on the coat that she wriggled into with clumsy irritated movements clumsy the woman was clumsy he wondered how he had never seen it and vulgar noisy and vulgar you never knew what a woman was like till you'd seen her angry he had answered her appropriately and with admirable tact he had scored every point he was scoring now with his cool imperturbable politeness he tried not to think about barbara your fur thank you he rang the bell partridge appeared tell kimber to bring the car round and drive mrs levitt home thank you mr waddington i'd rather walk partridge retired she held out her hand mr waddington bowed abruptly not taking it he strode behind her to the door through the smoke-room to the further door in the hall partridge hovered he left her to him and as she followed partridge across the wide lamp-lighted space he noticed for the first time that elise in her agitation waddled like a duck a greedy duck like that horrible sister of hers bertha rickards then he thought of barbara madden End of chapter 11, part 2. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine.